You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about Citizens, please visit citizensbhm.com. There comes a moment in every parent's life where your beautiful baby grows up. They got this great outfit on. They're so precious. They learn to walk. They toddle. They go to school. They go to city kids. They're two, maybe three, and they're just so perfect. And then a teacher pulls you aside and says, your child bit someone today. It's humiliating. It's strange. I always hope it didn't break the skin. But before this moment, you always saw other kids or heard of other kids biting someone. You thought, my kid will never do that. And then it happens. And you do what any good parent in this modern world does. You panic and you go to Amazon and you start buying these books. Take a look. No Biting by Karen Katz. Teeth are not for biting. Elizabeth Verdeck or my favorite, Little Dinos Don't Bite. And that one, I, I believe the dinosaur eats the other children and it's about losing friends. And biting will cause you to lose friends everywhere outside of the vampire community as adults, as kids, do not bite. And the power of these books, even though I think Tyler was gnawing on one as we instructed him, is they give good examples, don't bite, keep friends, and bad examples, bite, lose friends. And the Gospel of Luke is doing that very thing. All these people are responding to Jesus. He's the king who demands a response. And some respond positively, rightly. When we look in Luke 18, the blind man cries out and he's healed. He says, I'm needy, help. Jesus says, for sure. Zacchaeus says, I want to I look at this king and greets him with joy, sells all, eats dinner with Jesus. He responds rightly. The disciples on the triumphant entry and multitudes also looking at Jesus, they praise him as God. They respond rightly. And each little story is just a story of surrender. How do we receive King Jesus? We surrender all. What else would you do to the God of the universe when he shows up? We surrender by bringing our needs. We surrender by finding our highest joy in him. We surrender by living in light of his coming return, just as Pastor Noah preached last week, that we are to live faithfully in between the two comings of Christ. That that's a way to surrender, to say my priority is his mission. My priority is his kingdom. My priority is the king in all we do. And this is the exact sort of surrender that Jesus has been talking about, but now he's giving us examples. And in Luke 9, 23, he said this. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. If you try to keep the status quo, it's gonna go terrible. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it, surrender to him. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? It's a call to surrender. And it's embodied in these stories, but it's also embodied in these negative examples too. That there's only one right way to receive Jesus. But this passage shows there's a lot of ways to miss him. 
And it starts the steady thump, like a bass in the worship of rejection. This group rejects them. Next group rejects them. Every group rejects them. Rejection, rejection until it starts to beat into us that he keeps predicting his death at the hands of people and then it will happen. And the drumbeat picks up right here. The first thump of rejection is the Pharisees, the religious elites response to Jesus's triumphal entry. He's coming in on a donkey. He's coming in according to prophecy. And what do they do? They refuse to praise Jesus. They just refuse to praise him. The Pharisees clamor that Jesus needs to tell everyone to stop, that the fanfare has gone too far. But what does Jesus say? He says, verse 40, he answered Jesus, I tell you, if the people were silent, the very stones would cry out. The rocks would grow mouths if they need to. That I am to be praised and Jesus is affirming he's God. He's affirming he's worthy of praise and that if the people don't, creation will. You are called to praise God. Have you ever thought the only really quiet church culture is Western white church culture? That the rest of the globe And all the other churches in America that are predominantly black and brown, all of them are praising God with a joyful voice just as the Bible describes? I think we got to know that the Lord's word, it's a matter of obedience. And a refusal to praise the Lord is to join the Pharisees doubting his godness. This is not a matter of preference, but a matter of obedience. Did you know all of creation is praising God? The Psalm 19 says the stars are shouting about him, telling the story of God night after night. That Psalm 96 and 98 and Isaiah 55 say all of the landscapes. You know, you're blown away by that picture in Montana. And Jesus is saying, yeah, you're blown away at my work. And it's screaming about Those passages talk about the mountains singing, the rivers clapping their hands for God. Do you know Job 12, Isaiah 43, both say wild animals just being wild. Why do we love zoos? Because we're thinking about who made all this stuff. Have you seen an otter and a beaver? How many water mammals do we need in a river? We got them all. But what their wildness speaks to is there is a God. And this is the heart of our theology. It's Romans 1. It says all of creation says and screams, you have a creator who's divine in nature and has a power that's eternal. And when the Romans 1 tells us we suppress it and we say, I refuse to praise you. I got other ideas, even though we know better. Even though deep down we're like, So how's air work again? Creation screams to a divine design. The stones crying out is a cryptic reference to Habakkuk 2 that tells us the stones and rocks will witness against our shedding of blood on this earth. It's Jesus' way to say, I am indeed God and worthy of all praise and adoration, and to deny me is an absolute disaster for you. It is a heavy judgment to hand on back to the Pharisees. 
Jesus enters the city grounds. He comes down this Mount of Olivet. The city opens up. And what does he say? He says, verse 41, but he came closer to Jerusalem. In Hebrew, that means the city of peace. And he saw the city ahead and he began to weep. Why is our Lord weeping? How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late. Jesus is the true king of Jerusalem. He's finally here. The God-man visiting his people. The hope of all the Old Testament is happening. And we see we reject Jesus whenever we dismiss Jesus' work of peace and forgiveness. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that the gospel is a thing of first importance. That if the gospel is not first, we're missing The point, the gospel must be first or the rest doesn't matter. Jesus came to make peace by the gospel. He didn't come to just say, hey, let's get along. He knows we're not gonna get along. He knows we don't get along with God. And that's why he's heading to the cross. That's why the thump is here. That's why he's given us these examples to say, this is going to go bad, like I said, but I'm doing it on purpose that he dies and his blood shed makes peace between us and God. And he resurrects from the dead to say, even death can't keep me from my beloved. Even death can't keep me from obeying my father. This cross is for us. But Jesus weeps because most of his city, most of his people either outright reject him or just ignore him. They don't care. There's something on TikTok you gotta see. Listen, church, the Lord desires to make peace with you. Why else would he have came? Whether it's for the first time in salvation, but also every day, the worst thing you can do is try to hide your sin or run from God. Why? Because Jesus is actually the safest person in the history of the world for your faults, failures, and sins. If you come humble, you leave forgiven and healed. You come in repentance and he says, come on in for the big hug. We think we need to hide our sin. We think we need to bury our secrets. We need to be some other person. Wrong, 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 wrong. Jesus says, come on in. That's why I went to the cross. I'm gonna forgive you from the inside out. Jesus walks into Jerusalem and naturally, where does he go? He goes to his father's house, Luke 2, back where he was left behind that time. He's back in the temple, but what does he find? Verse 45, then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people selling animals for sacrifices. And he said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. We reject Jesus whenever we prioritize prophets over prayer. Jesus drives out all the businesses, all the commerce, all the buying and selling of animals, all the currency exchangers. And he's speaking of the scriptures. He's speaking of Isaiah 56, that the vision of the great temple of God is that all the nations would come. All the nations, all the languages would come and they would get to meet God and they get to pray to God and God would really be in the house. That all their false gods would look false because there was a place where the real God dwelt in the temple. But already, hundreds of years before Jesus walked on in, 
in Jeremiah 7, it said, already the temple had just become a den of thieves. And what they mean by that is that the same religious elites were running a racketeering, a RICO scandal, and it's been in the news, running a business to make money out of all these people seeking God. Charge them, overcharge them, rip them off, do business all in the places that were meant for prayer that they turned God's program into their prophet. Now, we don't have a temple. There's no great temple to visit. Instead, Jesus teaches that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, as Romans 12 says, that you are filled with the temple of God, which begs us to ask, what if your prayer life mattered more than your job? Just straight up. What if your prayer life was more important than your profession? That where your thoughts went to the presence of God instead to your profit margin? What if more than being productive, more than being efficient, more than being successful, more than having management's praise, the presence of God was more important? What if time with God was greater than the need to pay a bill or fill an investment account? That all of your security dwelt on the Lord who empowered you to work and not trying to do the other way around to use God as a tool to get what I want anyways. What if the goal was just God? It's tough for us to have open hands in prayer when we grip this tight to finances. If you feel you pray little, I would ask you, what are you holding on to then? If it's not the garments of praise, if it's not open hands in need, if it's not clinging to your Savior, then what do you got your hands on? I know I can get distracted with busy hands, but the Lord says, come. He cleans out the temple to invite the people in. Not to just kick everyone out. He says, we're making room. There's room for you if you've been gripping on the other things. There's more than enough room at the altar of God. He says, come on in, my child. I'm ready to meet you. I'm ready to show you I have something better than your profession before you. And Jesus is standing in this nearly cleared out temple, and he doesn't go nowhere because he's God. And he starts teaching in the temple and these angry religious elites, they confront him. Verse one says, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, preaching the gospel. If you wonder what Jesus is about, it's about preaching the gospel. We like to say Jesus about all this stuff. He about a lot of things. But the first thing is preaching the gospel over and over and over. In the temple, preaching the gospel. And the chief priests and the scribes with elders came up and said to him, well, tell us what authority you do these things. Who is it that gave you all this authority to flip over our tables, to knock out our guys, to change our business model? Jesus said, I'll ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And the religious elites struggle to answer because they don't know ultimately. Why? Or they say they don't know. Why? If they say John the Baptist is from heaven, Jesus will say, well, why didn't you listen? You guys supposedly love God. 
if you met a guy from heaven, you should probably listen. If they say John the Baptist was a fraud, then the people, the masses will riot because they love John the Baptist. They like him more than Jesus at this point. And Jesus' question exposes these leaders that they are worried about absolutely everything except the living God. The living God is breathing in front of them and they dare question him in disbelief. These are religious leaders with no God at all. We reject Jesus whenever we question Jesus in disbelief. They have an unbelieving heart. Jesus' authority is not the issue. Their heart is. And let me tell you this, that Christianity can handle any question. There is room for your doubts. There is room for your crying out. Read the Psalms. There is room to, to have questions and to seek answers. But we do it with faith. There is a valley between a genuine curiosity of faith, a struggling to believe, help me unbelieve, and a huge gulf to, I'm just asking questions and I've already decided I'm not believing. If rejection is the goal, then the questions and the answers become irrelevant, and that's what Jesus is pointing out. They've already chosen to reject him. He won't play games with anybody. So Jesus tells them a story about people playing games. He tells them the story of farmer and tenants, but what he's really telling them is about the whole story of Israel, that there's a God who gave you the farm. He gave you a relationship with God. He gave you a law. He gave you a religion. He gave you a special relationship with me. That's a master given this farm. And the tenants have had unbelieving hearts just like those religious elites. They've mishandled the farm. They thought the temple was for them not for seeking God, not for the people. And he tells them a story that at the end, that God will send his own son and the tenants will kill the son. And Jesus hits them with the revelation that this special relationship, this religion with God's going to be taken from them and they will be judged. Verse 15 describes it this way. They said, and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed them and killed him. The tenants killing the son, the last messenger. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? God, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. They can't believe it. They looked directly at them. What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The cornerstone is a large stone that sets the corner of any foundation, particularly in ancient buildings, but still today. And you set this cornerstone, and then you measure everything off the cornerstone. It's essential to setting the right foundation. And Jesus is quoting Psalm 118 to say, I am the fulfillment that the foundation of God's salvation work is me. And I will be rejected by some. I will be a great stumbling block to those who refuse to believe. They yell out, surely not. Even when plainly told, you're on the wrong side of history opposing God. You're joining all the condemned leaders of thousands of years. They yell back, no way. 
They yell out, surely not. They struggle to believe that God will actually judge them and that unbelief is truly wicked. To refuse our creator is a big problem. We reject Jesus whenever we ignore God's coming judgment for wickedness. I don't teach fire and brimstone every week, but I do teach the scriptures, and when there's condemnation like this, I would be a fraud not to preach what God's word clearly says. We've overcorrected as a church in America. We've overcorrected. We don't need only fire and brimstone, but we do need a scriptural amount of judgment when Jesus offers it. Because we live in a world of surely not. Not me, no way, maybe someone else, maybe someone I consider worse than me, but never will I have accountability. And boy, Jesus teaches the exact opposite. He says, there's no hidden ways past me. There's nothing I don't know. I know hearts, I know lives. I know you by name. And in classic Jesus fashion, the text moves from a judgment that couldn't be heavier to incredible hope. Just a spring of endless hope. Let this sink in. In verse 19, I'll I'll quote the whole passage because it's enough to make you jump for just joy as you start to see his point. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. They've decided to murder him. For they perceived that Jesus had told the parable against them. They were correct. But they feared the people. Even told that God's judgment is coming like a freight train, they would rather say, surely not, let's kill him and do the parable. (sighs) Then repent. So they watched him. They sent spies. Religious elites are employing spies who pretended to be sincere. Hmm that they might catch him in something they said, as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality. Flattery. But truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Remember, these people are under Roman rule. Caesar is the emperor. He's the king of it. Caesar is the person you pay taxes to or tribute. But Jesus perceived their craftiness. Nothing's hidden from them. And he said to them, show me a denarius. Show me a hundred dollar piece would be a good equivalent today. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. And he said to them, then render or give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Not the most effective spies. They're trying to trick Jesus into saying they shouldn't pay taxes. The people would love to hear that. 
wouldn't you love to hear me get up here and say, don't pay taxes, guys. Lord got us. Or they want Jesus to say you should pay taxes and make him less popular with the crowds. Here's a picture of a denarius, just so we get it in our mind. That guy, that's Caesar, which is just the word for king, but for them they'd say emperor. Uh, Tiberius, probably Emperor Tiberius there. They all look the same. And the inscription usually reads, Caesar save us, or Caesar the divine, that they believed whoever was the emperor was actually the son of God. That you are supposed to put your trust and your fealty and your fidelity, your faith in the empire. The empire will save you. The empire will protect you. The empire is good for you, even if you've been conquered. In the surface interpretation, Jesus is cleverly saying that money is of this world, subject to the world's rules, so pay your taxes. Come on. But more interestingly, what are the things that belong to God? The best answer is to think carefully about exactly what Jesus says. A coin has Caesar's image and likeness on it. Therefore, the coin belongs to Caesar, living out in Rome. Therefore, what bears God's image and likeness and therefore explicitly belongs to God. Hear Genesis 1.29. This is like a deep cut from Jesus. Page one of the Bible. That's where he goes. That's what he's alluding to. Genesis 1.29. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing, everything that praises God, we should be helping it praise God. When we refuse to praise God, we're out of order. We're trying, we're being coming like an animal who can't obey. We were meant to praise God and lead the world in its rejoicing. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them and God blessed them. You are blessed to be a man, blessed to be a woman. You bear the image of God. You have infinite dignity and worth in a world that wants to spit on you. You don't have to spit back because you know who you belong to. You belong to God. And no one can take that away from you. Our brothers and sisters imprisoned, no one can take it away from them. Our brothers and sisters, what do you have, a dollar or a billion dollars? You belong to God. Could there be better news than you belong to God? Like what other news, what other email you wanna catch? Even though sin has separated us from God, God and Jesus came to bring us back to God by paying the guilt owed by our sins so that we could render, which is fancy for give, ourselves to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, surrender all. The correct response to the king is to lay down our arms and say, I'm a rebel and I'm coming home. You taking me back? And the answer is always yes. 
Our rejection of God is so awful because we belong. That God made us and we were made for God. Money's just money. But we're worth all the money in the world, each of us. We don't need to be impressed with wealth. It's not worth as much as you. We reject Jesus whenever we overlook that we belong to God. And the chapter ends with Jesus asserting his authority over all these foolish leaders, people who think they know everything and don't seem to know anything. Jesus stumps the religious leaders with the scriptures they claim to know so well, then warns them against religious hypocrisy, that playing religious with a heart far from God is very, very, very dangerous. And that Jesus sees all, sees their cold hearts, sees how they uh, attack the poor. And as Pastor H.B. Charles says, you might get by, but you won't get away. That's Jesus' policy for religious hypocrisy. And together, these moments mean whenever we fail to have humility about the things of God, we're rejecting Jesus, no matter how religious we are. Jesus and his scriptures are nothing to be played with. They are to be obeyed. Jesus is a treasure to be treasured. Spiritual and lurking behind all these seven rejections is just one thing. It's the blank we skipped earlier if you're taking notes. It's spiritual pride. He's talking to all religious leaders here. Spiritual pride is the reason surrendering to Jesus seems ridiculous. And when I say pride, I don't mean being just aware of your God-given dignity. That's a healthy pride, a healthy idea of self-worth and dignity. And I don't mean pride as being reasonably proud of someone else. Eloise Carl went in the city championship in basketball this weekend. Just reasonably proud. It's not being reasonably proud of a worthy accomplishment like graduating high school, getting a GED. That's an awesome accomplishment. I'm talking spiritual pride with the pastor Tim Keller, the late pastor Tim Keller defines this way. Spiritual pride is the illusion, is the make-believe that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. Let me put that in the J. Carl, Alabama translation. Spiritual pride believes deep down, no matter how religious we are, that we don't really need God or anybody else for that matter. Each rejection of Jesus speaks to this underlying cancer. And it's cancer. It's incurable apart from Christ. We refuse to praise Jesus because we're so impressed with ourselves. He seems unworthy of praise because we found a worthy one. We dismiss Jesus' gospel because we just don't see our sin. We choose to be blind. You have no need of the gospel. I need to learn other things, Justin, if you feel like you have no sins. We prioritize prophets over prayer because we pursue denariuses instead of God's presence. That we just... Full stop, love money. 
and not God. We question Jesus in disbelief, asking him to conform to our ideas of right and wrong. I'm a just judge, God. I don't like this part of the Bible. We don't get to say it. We ignore God's coming judgment for wickedness, and we yell, surely not, instead of I repent. We overlook our belonging to God because we, we've tricked ourselves in thinking we belong to a world that don't love us. We keep fighting for the world to accept us, the world to love us, and the world over and over is saying, I don't love you, but I want your money. We fail to have humility about the things of God because religion just becomes another tool for us. This is my way to get respect. This is my way to make friends. This is my way to get what I want or feel morally superior. The religion of Christianity is no one's tool. It is a way to worship a king who loves you. Spiritual pride is sneaky and it makes us miserable. John Piper describes the great danger of spiritual pride this way. Pride not only multiplies the weight of our anxieties, but makes our loving creator, our honorable king, our gracious God into our omnipotent enemy. That's what's happening in this passage. The God who came to save went from being questioned and unpraised and rejected, and the more Jesus tells them the truth, suddenly they're spies, and now comes their arrest, and then a cross. When spiritual pride is the cancer of your soul, God is actually your enemy, no matter how religious you are. Pride makes us anxious about this world that doesn't love us and will not last. Pride makes surrender seem insane as we grip ever tighter to our life, our loves, our ways, anything but God. So listen to Luke 9 once again. Listen to your Savior. Listen to the only king who's ever going to matter. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? How do we reject King Jesus? Be sick with spiritual pride. Church, would you lay your heart before the Lord today? Would you keep surrendering? Yes, there's a time to turn and believe, but each day, each week, each hour is another chance to keep surrendering your life to a, to a Lord that hugs you and welcomes you. Would you keep surrender like a drumbeat in your life? That the beat of every music would remind you, I'm a surrendered one to a mighty king. If you don't believe yet, would you consider Jesus to be your king, not just because of an awful judgment? True. But did you know that this Jesus willingly dies for these people? All these people rejected him. He's on the cross saying, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He prays for them and heads the cross for everyone who's rejected him. 
Who ever heard of a king like that? Jesus is beautiful. And he longs for you to belong with him again.